The following is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. More teaching like this can be found at graceteaching.net or searching Grace-Oriented Teaching wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here is our speaker. For those of you, I think we did this time at Nelson's. We filled in down there. The Lowell's had kind of a problem a week ago, and we so when we went down there. But we did this on Wednesday night a couple weeks ago. So those of you that, that were there on Wednesday night, um, we went over this. But um, I was thinking about what Ben was talking about, about miracles in that one song. And there's a statement that Jesus makes in John 14 and uh, verse 12 or 13. Off the top of my head, I don't remember which one it is, but you can look at it in there. But he says, he says, I've done these works. He says, believe because of the works. He says, but he says, but I'm going away. He says, and you're going to do greater works. And he was talking about greater in number, not necessarily greater in kind. And we went, illustrated that, that he did some things that were greater than they did, although they did some pretty incredible things. They healed and they raised the dead and things like that. But we have that privilege of doing those works. One of those works that uh, we don't always, uh, pastors, I think we sometimes can study uh, for things, and maybe we don't always take this as seriously, but in Ephesians chapter 4, um, when he goes through uh, the fact that he's given gifts, and he lists four gifts in particular, apostles, prophets, uh, evangelists, and shepherd teachers, and then he goes on and he says that, well, he talks about that those gifts are given to equip us. And then he goes on down in the context and he makes a statement down below. After he gets done saying, don't, don't live like the Gentiles live. But then he says, because you didn't learn Christ like this. Assuming, it's a first class condition in Greek, assuming this to be true, that you have heard him and been taught by him. In the Ephesians, we're over 600 miles from Jerusalem. The Ephesians got saved during Paul's second missionary journey about 20 years after Christ ascended and went back to heaven. So how in the world did the Ephesians hear or learn from Christ? They learned from the men that he equipped. And when I say men, I'm using that in the generic sense because, yes, there are ladies that are used in, in this process. But people... That are, so, that are so gifted to equip people, and he gives them that gift to serve. And if, and if I take up the word of God and I communicate what God says rather than my opinion, you should be, able, you should be hearing Jesus. You hear that? You should be hearing Jesus. And what happens is, is it's really easy for us to come up with and this happens to this happened to me. I'm not I'm not immune to this. That I'm studying along, and I'm thinking about something. And, and this is what it ha happens the most to me: is when I go out for a walk or a run, and I don't have the Bible with me, and I'm thinking about these verses and scriptures, and I'm out there, and I'm praying about this, and I'm going, oh. And then I'm teaching this, and I'm like, oh, this thing, this thing, oh, that would that would be cool. And then you get home and you look at the Bible and go, oh, that's not really the way it says it. In my mind, I remember it differently. You know, you ever have scriptures that you remember differently than what they actually say? And you're going, yeah, I kind of be kind of twisting that scripture to get that thing out of there. But the thing is, and I've probably been guilty of actually doing that at times. I, I hope not a lot, but I know for a fact, I, I tune in and I listen to different speakers uh, online. You listen to them and they get up and you're going, where, what? And I pull up one of my Bible and going, 
That is not what it's saying. It's just it's plainly not saying that. I could ask a second grader if it said that, and a second grader goes, well, it's not saying that. But it's really cool and it communicates well. And the problem with that is, is that if I or anybody else communicates some idea they've come up with in this process, then what are people hearing? Jesus? No, they're hearing me. They're hearing my ideas. My, as, as Jim was talking about down the class, they're hearing human philosophy and human logic put together something that they think is pithy, cool, it's going to get people's attention, but it's not something that a person can go back to the Word of God and say, the Bible says this. Take your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 1. Go to verse 9 where we left off last week. We, we finished verse 9, but we're, we're going to come back to it as moving on today. Titus chapter 1 and verse 9. It says, Holding fast the faithful word, which is according with teaching. And we've talked about last week that there's two words for teaching or doctrine in this word. There's the word teaching there, and if you have the New American Standard, you have down below... Uh, sound doctrine or healthy doctrine. And the word, first word that's translated teaching in verse 9 is teaching that governs my conduct. It tells me how to live. It tells me about who I am in Christ. It tells me about God's grace. It tells me how to deal with things. It tells me what God's doing with me today. The word down below, doctrine, is a word that's talking about truth that I accept. That's true, but it doesn't govern my conduct. Do I believe God created the universe? I believe God created the universe. Do I believe that God rescued the three Hebrew young men from the fiery furnace? Yeah, I, I fully agree with that. Do I believe that Jesus fed over 5,000 people on more than one occasion? Yeah, I believe that. I accept that that's true. Does that govern my conduct? No. Because I'm not going and I'm not looking at those things and saying, um, hey, uh, they throw me in the furnace. Oh, God can do that. Although I always think it's important to notice that the young men said, our God can deliver us. Whether our God does or not, we're still not going to bow down to you. <laughs> See? So we have a lot of truth. And the problem with that is the largest portion of our Bible, the Old Testament, most of that is communicating that doctrine in the last, last part. And most people don't read it for what it says. Most people have no idea what their Bibles actually say. They spend so little time actually reading their Bible or listening to it. I mean, you don't even have to read it these days. You can get it on your phone and you can put your Bible on there and you can put headphones in and you can be listening to your Bible and you can listen to it. And, and in reality, through much of the church history, that's the way most people took in the Word of God. They listened to it because a lot of them couldn't read or even if they could read, they probably didn't own a set of scriptures. They were lucky maybe to have a copy of one letter. So they had to listen to other people when they got together, read the Bible. Although this is an interesting fact, and I don't know if you've ever heard people say this, but they know that to this day, oral cultures have a better, have a better uh, remembering factor than we do. We are a written culture, and we're like, I don't need to remember that. I just need to know where to go back to go find it. But I don't need to remember that fact. But in oral cultures where people listen to stories and they don't read a lot, you can go to those people, and, and you have generations after generations at that story. And one of those, uh, I don't know if it's one of the books back there from New Tribes, but it's one of those, Peg and I were reading this back 
two or three years ago, and they were at a tribe one night where the missionary couple was uh, in there. It was Christmas Eve, I believe it was, uh, and they're sitting in there in their house over in Africa, and they're kind of eating supper, or doing something in the evening, and all of a sudden, the, the people from their church start going by, and when they go by, they're all hollering in the windows, hey, 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 and they're like, what, what are they do all doing tonight? Well, they all, all the people, apart from the missionaries, decided to get together that night and do kind of a, a Christmas party in Africa. Uh, I don't know if these missionaries thought, and I'm probably not remembering the story well, but they get around there and they decide they're going to tell the whole Bible story. So they get up and they start telling the Bible story. But this is what happens. Somebody tells the Bible story and people go, oh, no, 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 you forgot. When, the, when this person did this, then they, and, and they, it, the, the, the missionaries just sat there and just were amazed listening to the way these people keep the story on target. So that the story doesn't, you know how the story is like, I went fishing with dad and I caught a fish today, mom. And then you tell your kids, hey, I went fishing with my dad when I was a kid and I caught a fish. And then my grandkids, man, I went fishing with dad and I caught a fish. You know how things, how stories evolve over time? Yeah. And these people in this oral culture were really good at keeping the, the story on target and correcting each other and saying, no, 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 no. That's not, the way, that's not what the story said. The story is this. And they do not want that story to deviate. Okay? They don't want the telephone game. And they're careful with that. And they know for a fact, oral cultures, their traditions over generations of generations of generations remain very close. There is very little deviation. And the reason I say all of that is, is that in, in the history of the church, people listened to the word and they took this in. And as they take the word in, they really worked carefully at remembering what they heard so that they themselves could then recite it back to other people and remember it for their benefit. So, I've got these two words for doctrine here in verse 9. The communication of this truth. Teaching people, this is what God says for you. This is what God has for you. This is what God was going to do for you. And then you have this other doctrine. This is who God is. And these are things God has done. And this is how God worked with these people. And this is not for you, but it, you still benefit from knowing these things. So, why do you need both of those? I, there are some people that when they come and they find out that there's some of the scripture that is not for you, and we can even tell them that there's value in those Old Testament scriptures. We're using that very broadly when we say Old Testament scriptures. But we use that word, that we'll use this word that way, that immediately people go, well, and I've had people say this to me. I'm out of this rip. You're just telling me I'm just well rip the Gospels and the Old Testament out and throw them away because they're not practical. And this is what people think is that if I can't put it into practice in my life, why do I even have it? Why do I even read it? Why do I even, you know? Why do you need both of those? Why do you need, why, why does, in the, in the context, why, why, who, who did verse 9 apply to first and foremost in our study from last week? Who's it about? First and foremost. Took a drink and then Ben said that and it startled me. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I asked a question. I was waiting for an answer. I was just like, oh, yeah, there it is. Yeah. It's, it's first and foremost about the pastors. It's about the shepherd teachers is what it is about. 
And so he, as he's talking to these people, and he says, these shepherds need to have this qualification. And their qualification is, essentially, let's put it this way, in very simple terms, they need to hold firmly to the, to the part of teaching that tells me how to live. But they do that so that then they can use the part of Scripture that isn't for living to do, and he says two things in there. Notice what he says in verse, at the end of verse 9. They might be able to encourage... That's one of the things that he says there, that they might be able to encourage by that teaching, by the healthy teaching, and expose or convince or reprove those that are contradicting. The first part of this, we, we neglect this. But do you know that by reading the Old Testament scriptures, you should get encouragement out of those scriptures? Can anybody tell me a passage in the Old Testament that God has used to encourage you at some time? Well, my Sunday school room is going through Deuteronomy 1, chapters 1 through 4. 1 through 3 is basically Moses rehashing the trip, the exodus from Egypt up to, or just across the, the Storm River from Jericho, and how he took care of them, even when they weren't worth it. And to keep reminding them, look, look what I did for you in Egypt, and look what I did here, and just how powerful God is, and that he's a faithful God. When he makes a promise, he keeps it, even when we're horrible, terrible people. <laughs> Question. How many of you have lived lives far, far better than the Israelites did coming out of Egypt. Raise your hand if you have lived a life that is exemplary compared to the Israelites. Oh, Jim's going to say he's done far better. I don't know. I look at myself sometimes and I'm going, I don't know that I'm a whole lot better. Okay, well, yeah, I didn't get involved in some of the things that they did. And yeah, I didn't do that. But the whole thing is, you know what? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, we're we're kind of up and down. If you guys couldn't see see Carmen, she's she's saying, yeah, we're up and down. Um, yeah, we we don't necessarily do a lot better than this than the Israelis did. They had Israelis that did the right thing, but they had some that did not. And you you read those passages and you go, but you know what? God was faithful to bring them out to keep His promise to bring them to the land and give it to them as He said. And guess what? That encourages me that the promises God's made to me. He hasn't promised me a land, but he's promised other things to me. And if he was faithful to them, even though they blew it, does that encourage me that he'll be faithful to me? Yeah. I think that that's encouraging to me. It's a good example. It's a good example that we don't always think about that. In other words, to some degree, we could say God's faithful, but we also say at times when you look at that, we could say that God actually was showing grace to them, even though they may not have identified it as grace, God was actually showing grace to Israel at times when they were blowing it under the law, which doesn't mean that the grace, that the law was grace, despite what that, that teacher I taught you or shared with you last week that he said that. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. So with this then, Let's move into our, our, our study today because that's the first part is the encouragements, but the last part of it is that they might be able to expose those who contradict. And 
My, my goal, you have an outline. My goal is to get through that whole outline today, and that's not going to happen, so we're only going to get through part of it. I already have a mark where I think that we're, we will end today. We'll see if we make it to that spot. I just think that that, otherwise you'll be here, and we'll be here all the way into Josh's study. So here in Titus 1, at the end of this, the other thing he needs to be able to do is handle the word so that he can reprove with, those, with that proper Old Testament doctrine, healthy Old Testament doctrine, Again, that's not that's an interpretation of that word for doctrine at the end, okay? Because it's just doctrine that doesn't govern your conduct particularly. And he says that they might be able to expose or refute or convince or reprove. There's a number of ways of handling that. Those who are opposing. In other words, when you teach the word of God, you're going to run into false teachers, and they're not always out there. Sometimes there are people sitting in your church. There are people that come in and they sit down in here. And they also are going to try to teach things that are wrong. And so Paul says, if we go right into the next verse in verse 10, For there are many rebellious rebellious people. It's just we have rebellious men, but it's just rebellious ones. Uh, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. We'll just take that part of it and get through that, the first part. First of all, he says that they're unsubmissive. And I would say unsubmissive in the fact that they will not submit to God's order for proper teaching. Take your, keep your finger here and flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 1. <clears throat> 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 3. Seems like we come back to this verse a lot, but I think it's a really important passage for us to come to. Paul says, I encouraged you while I was going away into Macedonia to remain in Ephesus in order that you might charge. Now, some of your Bibles that might have different word language that they have here. The numeric ascent has the word instruct, but it's, it's a word for giving a charge, not a command, but a charge. I charge you with this thing. This, this, is, this is what you're responsible for getting done. And I charge you to cut that out. Kind of sounds a little bit like a command, but it's a distinct term. So he says to charge them not to teach differently. And some of your Bibles are going to say teach strange doctrines. It's just, it's one word, teach differently. That's what the word is. Not to teach differently. And that word differently starts with the, with the adjective heteros, meaning something that is not similar. It's different in the fact that it's, you're teaching this and they're teaching this thing over here. You're teaching that God is good, and they're saying God's not good. That would be a, an extreme example. Not saying that that's what these guys are doing. So he goes on, verse 4, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. We'll kind of come back to that next week. Uh, unending genealogies, which only produce debates rather than the dispensation or the house rule from God that is in faith. In other words, Paul was the one that taught us how to live by faith in this house rule of grace. Okay? Paul was the one that taught this. Paul taught people to do this, but there were people that weren't doing this. They didn't want to pay attention to this lifestyle by faith. And so he goes on, <clears throat> and he says, now the end of that charge, and I would take end in this case not necessarily meaning the end point, but the goal or the purpose of this charge is love. In other words, the, the reason you live by grace and you live by faith is so that you can love properly. 
You don't want, I don't want Tim love to be seen. I want Christ's love to be seen through me, right? Isn't that what we want? We want people to see Christ's love through us. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. What? Because you just loved like, or you figured out, well, how does, jo how does Josh love his customers down there at the grocery store? So I'm going to figure that out. You know why I say that? Because I can guarantee you there's all kinds of books and talks given by people that are in business that are going to tell you how to really look out for your customer, well, to drive your business. <laughs> See, because in the end, you're looking out for your customer, but in the end, there's kind of a selfish end. Christ didn't love like that. So I'm not saying that Josh is selfish. I'm just saying that that's the normal way you function in the world, right? And so he says the end of the charge is love. Love out of a clean heart, out of a good conscience, and out of an unhypocritical faith. This is all the purpose. From which some having missed the mark. And that idea is, um, I've never had actually had to put this into practice. Because I'm not, I'm not a fully adventuresome sort. Uh, where I'm like just going to, if, if I'm going to go hiking in the woods, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to take well-defined trails that I can tell that a thousand and one other people have walked on ahead of me and I can see where we're going. I'm not going to be that guy that's going, hey, let's just head off down out through here and see where we go. That's not me. That's not me. But some of you have met my friend Mike Mackey from Minnesota. And Mike Mackey grew up right on the edge of the, of the Superior National Forest uh, out, out of Duluth, Minnesota. They, were living on, they lived on a farm out there. And so his dad, when he was young, taught him how to hunt and taught him how to find his way in the timber. And, this, and, and Mike's the one that shared this with me. I, I grew up on the prairie. You need to understand the prairie in Iowa, the only trees you have are trees around farms and down creeks. Otherwise, it's, it's a treeless, barren wasteland. Well, it's not a wasteland. It's actually very productive farmland, but it doesn't have trees all over. And this is, this is the way that, that Mike's dad taught him to, to navigate in the timber. If you get lost in the timber, this is what you do. You find a point, you stand at a tree. You stand and you look at a tree straight out ahead, maybe 100 or 200 yards out ahead of you. Then you step to the side and you find a tree that's another 100 or 200 yards beyond that one. So you focus on this one, but with the goal of always keeping that one in line. That way you know you're going in a straight line rather than which is the number one thing. They, if you don't know this, they say most people that get lost in the woods, if you actually trace out what they've done, they go round in circles and they don't even know it. <laughs> they say, and it, sometimes it has to tend to do with, is your, are your right side dominant or left side dominant? Which way you tend to go? And Mike's dad says, so you walk to that tree. When you get to that tree, then you stand, you go on the other side, you look at the tree that was straight ahead from it, pick it again, keeping your eye on it, and you step over until you find a tree straight behind it, and then you go to that tree, and then to the next tree, and you just keep moving, but you always have to have two trees beyond to keep that line straight. You go, okay, what in the world does that have to Because that's what this word, when it says here in, uh, uh, I lost my place, in verse 6, it says some have strayed away. It's literally, it's the person that says, this is where you're supposed to go. Go that way. Head east, head over there towards that place, and the next thing, they're, they're always going, oh, I want to do this. I want to look at that over there. And, and next thing you know, they're lost. They get themselves lost because they're meandering off after, oh, that looks interesting. And pretty soon they have no idea where they are. And they can't figure out how to get back to their starting point. 
And so Paul's saying, some have then strayed. They've set the wrong target, the wrong aim. They've gone in the wrong direction, and now they're lost as a result. They have turned aside unto empty talk. That is, they say things, but there's no, there's no result of it. When, when you get all done with it, you can tell people this all day long. It's not going to happen. Nothing's going to be produced by this. Case in point. Keeping your finger, you got your finger in two places now. Keeping your finger here. Let's turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. I want to go to verse 32. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 32. In fact, let's even go back up to verse 31 just to make sure we get all this together. He says, but as for you, but as for you, He's talking, this is, this is Moses talking to the Israelis. But as for you, stand here by me that I may speak to you all the commands and the statutes and the judgments which you shall teach them that they may observe in the land which I'm going to give them so that you shall observe or guard just as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. Do not deviate from the law. You stick with exactly what's commanded. Why? You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and I think live literally means not die physically, that you may live, and that it may be well with you, or in the Hebrew, good, tob, it might be good with you, you might have a, a good life. What, 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 how would you define a good life? Simple terms. What, what, what? You got everything you need. <laughs> and Lindsay, you got, got kids. What would you say with regard to kids? What makes up good life? You guys yeah, well, you've got kids there, so I'm just wondering. When they obey. Oh, when they uh, obey. Um, uh, good life is families go well, provide for what they need, communication. Mm -hmm. You can provide for what they need. Think about that. I, I just can't imagine what that's like. I've, I've talked with people that have been through those times when they've got kids, and they're like, we had, a, we had a family show up at church here like 30 years ago, I think like the first or second year we were here, and they showed up on a Wednesday night. They didn't show up for church. They came because one of the men here worked in Napa, and their car broke down just outside of town, and they had someone bring, bring them into town, and their car was broke down, and they had like, what, five kids, and they were in an old station wagon, and the thing was just packed and brimming with stuff. They were moving, he had a job up at OMAC, and they were trying to get up there to, to this job, but the car broke down, and he needed to get a part. And so while this man in the church went to help go open Napa on a Sunday evening and, and get him the part, the, the, the family came in and sat, sat downstairs. We were downstairs. I think we were eating with birthday night, so we were eating cake and ice cream, so church was actually over, and the, and Peggy's like, hey, would you like some, would you like some cake and ice cream, you know, what, what, well, yes, but we got, we have, we have to get, wait to get there, we're doing this, and the kids are just like, and the kids are like, oh, this is so good, we haven't eaten all day, well, sometimes kids can say that kind of thing, and they're, you know, Clinton might go, oh, I haven't eaten all day, and it's, well, no, it's just that he ate, he ate half a, you know, half of a hog for lunch, and that, that leg's full, and now the other one's have No, I'm joking. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes when you're young, it seems like it seems like I haven't eaten all day, and you did. But these kids were serious. They hadn't eaten anything all day. They'd run out of money. Their dad 
had enough money to buy fuel to be getting them to OMAC, and now he's going to have to blow some of that to buy parts. And they, they weren't stopping for food. They'd run out of food. So my wife, my wife actually then went and got a bunch of food at our house and fixed up some stuff and fed these kids supper. And then we did something. Uh, Leroy went and he went and got some food together so these kid, kids, so these people have something to eat for breakfast the next day. He took them out to their place and, and uh, helped get the car running. In other words, just think about what that's like about the fa fact of raising a family and not being able to feed them. How, looking at these little faces of your kids and going, I, I have no food for you. Anyway, I'm, I'm laboring the point because I'm trying to make this, this illustrative because it's something I don't think any of us relate to here. Are there any of you that actually have sat with your kids and gone, I can't feed you. I don't have money to feed you. You're going to starve. Oh, my kids. Or the fact that your children are sick all the time and you don't have the money to get any kind of medical care. There's nothing to do about it. You just can't do a thing. So when he says that it might that you may live and it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land which you possess, he's talking about having a good life. The kids are healthy. You're well fed. Things are going well versus you're living hand to mouth and you know what? We've got days that we can't feed the family even. And the kids are sick and work's hard to come by. And you all get the point? That's the law. But you know, there are people to this day that look at those verses and go, see, if you keep the law, let me teach you the Ten Commandments, which, by the way, are just on my Bible, just across the page in chapter 5, where Moses reviews the Ten Commandments with these people of Israel. And you go over and you read those Ten Commandments, and now they say, see, if you do those things, you're going to be prosperous, and everything's going to go well, and your kids will be healthy, and they'll have plenty to eat. And they teach a type of prosperity message. And then they, then the other thing that they do on the other side of it is, well, if you're not prosperous and you are going through hard times and you don't have enough to eat, well, you obviously are disobeying God, right? Go back over to 1 Timothy chapter 1. See, it, that's empty talk, he says there, that they are teaching these things turned aside to fruitless discussions or empty talk because when they say that, God's not behind that. God has made... I, Christians don't like to hear this because we've been told that, yeah, God hasn't promised that we'll be rich, but he's promised he'll take care of our needs. And they got a verse for it in Philippians chapter 4, but that need is met in Christ. So it's a spiritual need, not a physical need. And Paul himself in that very context has said, I know what it's like to be hungry and be okay with it. So God has not promised or guaranteed any of us that we're going to be financially okay that we're always going to be able to have enough to eat and enough to feed our kids. And I've taught on that, and I've had Christians tear up going, well, that doesn't seem very nice of God. I'm just telling you, all I can tell you is that God has not promised that to us. Now, you know what? In all the years that I've been a Christian, we've never starved. I know sometimes I think I'm starving, but my wife would look at me and go, look, at you're not starving. <laughs> I've got enough insulation here. It's a demonstration I'm not starving. It's just in my head I think I am. But I, we've never starved. Our kids growing up never went without food. We always were adequately housed, adequately clothing. God has been. We have enjoyed God's goodness in that regard. By the way, God is good even if we don't have that, right? So, 
Verse 7, he goes on, because they want to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they're making confident assertions. In other words, he says that you have to do this because these people up there that want to teach differently than Paul, they don't want to teach people to live by grace and faith. They want to teach people to live by law, but they really don't understand the law. If you went back to the law, read the law, if you would even join and sit in in Peg's Sunday school class with those kids as they've been going through the law, those kids are getting a view of what the law looked like. And it doesn't look anything like most Christians teach law keeping. It was a very, very different thing. So with this, go back over to Titus 1 now. Now you don't have to keep holding places, right? We're back in Titus 1. So he says, for this reason, there are many rebellious people. They're rebellious because they do not want to submit to God's instruction for how to live by grace in this present house rule, this present dispensation, this present administration. They don't want to live by that. They want to live by the law. Now, why do I say that? Well, because this is it, the context will bear this out. The second thing he says not only are they, they rebellious or unruly, but they're also empty talkers. The same word that Paul used over there in 1 Timothy chapter 1 of these people, he says these guys also are empty talkers. They're going to take you to scriptures and they're going to try to promise things to you that God is not going to stand behind. You could keep, you could be diligent and you could try to keep the law. And I think we asked this question last week. Was the law too hard for people to keep? No. In fact, Moses said that in the Old Testament. He says, it's not too hard. It's right there. You know what the rules are. What's the problem? I don't want to do that rule. Why not? Well, because I've got a sin nature. And my sin nature wants to do what my sin nature wants to do. And I want to have a tantrum right now. And I want to strike a person. <laughs> and I might strike them hard enough with a rock that they, are, that they suffer harm. And the law told you that if you struck a person and you did something, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, right? Did the law teach that? It taught that. And most people don't know that, by the way. And so they're empty talkers. God is not behind those things. Second of all, they're deceivers. And that word deceivers means they are so good at the way they put their argument together that it messes up, in the Greek here, messes up their attitude or their frame of mind, or messes up your attitude or frame of mind. You can listen to them, and by the time you're done, you can come in here going, oh, I know grace, I know grace, I got this, we're gracing. What? What? And by the time they're done, if you really are paying attention to this and you are not well grounded in what it means to really live by grace, you're going to walk out of there. And I've known people like this. I've known people like this that I thought they understood grace living. And then you find out they've adopted law and they went whole into it. They dove into the deep end and they're now observing Old Testament dietary laws and the whole works. Because I don't think they ever really were grounded in grace teaching. I don't know. I don't, somebody made this comment downstairs. I think it was downstairs. Maybe it was up here, but I think it was downstairs in Jim's class about the fact that sometimes we're accused. Uh, Jim said it because he said it last week too. We're sometimes accused of being nitpickers. Kale, do you know what a nitpicker is? 
<laughs> you know what a knit is? A knit, a knit is the little eggs that the lice lay in, in, in your hair. And so knit pickers is when your moms, your dads would never do this, because dads would go, Ugh. no, I'm just joking. But it's where mom or somebody sits and picks through the hair of the person, and they find these little teeny, I mean, they're so small, you got to really look at it. And they take your fingernails, and you pick those knits off the hair, and you're going, and when you're trying to get rid of all those little things, and you got to, think about, they're hard to see. If you've ever seen these, it's hard to see, and they're going through that. So people accuse us of being nitpickers, because they're saying, you strain at the word of God. You look at it, you make it's too hard. It's not, the word of God's just real easy. And I would say, you know, for the most part, it is easy. But a lot of times, it's like that guy last week that I was telling you about, where he thinks, oh, you're too fussy about the grace law thing. God gave the law. The law was God's grace. It was the grace of God, despite the fact the New Testament tells us otherwise. And so when he's talking to us about this, he says, they're going to come across and they're going to be... It, we're going to be nitpickers about stuff because we want you. We want when Clinton takes off and goes to Georgia, right, Georgia, goes to boot camp, and then wherever they send him from there, and he goes out there, and he's going to rub elbows with lots of people over the course of his life. All of us know that. Think How many of you look at your life and go, I'm surprised all the people that God's brought across my path that I never could. When I was 18 years old and I'm heading out to the world, I had no clue the things God was going to take me through. Raise your hand if that's true of you. Some of you more exciting than others. I don't always think my life's been exciting in that sense, but I've always amazed at the situations and people God's brought me through. But as you go out and do that, if you are not grounded in just truth, it is so easy for us to get drawn aside and, and go off after these other things. And next thing you know, we're over here and we are so far from where God desires us to be. It's not just so far from what Pastor Tim taught you here. It's so far from what the Word of God actually taught us. And so he says, these people are especially, at the end of verse 10, they're especially out of the circumcision. It's Jews. Now, he doesn't say they're exclusively of the circumcision, but he says they especially come from them. Because the circumcision, like Paul himself, in Romans 7, they're going to say, we ought to try the law. Now, I'm going to say two things about this. This includes people who are believers, and this includes people who are unbelievers. It's always easy to think if a person leads people astray and teaches things that are wrong, must be an unbeliever, but that's not true. We've got plenty of evidence in Scripture that you've got both believers and unbelievers that teach things that are wrong. And if they're unbelievers and you listen to them long enough, and you hear when every time they come to salvation and they get towards what's supposed to be the gospel, you're going, that's not the gospel. That's not even close. It's real easy for us to go, okay, that guy's wrong. But you know what's hard? is when you hear people that actually will tell you how to get saved. Because they got the gospel right. But they don't know how to tell you how to live. And that really throws us. And they're going, I'm sure that person's saved. I've had believers say that to me. I had, I had some believers that went through a really hard thing many years ago. And uh, uh, happened to, well... I don't know how much detail to get. They just let's just say one of the, one person did something that you and I would all look at and go, "Oh, how could you do that?" This is the way we we would think that even if we didn't make that face and gesture and say that out loud, but we'd be thinking that about this person. But I remember when all of that happened, I had a believer that I know pretty well that said, "I thought that person was a Christian. 
I thought they were a believer. And I said, well, how do you know that they're not? Well, how could a Christian do that? And I'm like, Christians do all kinds of horrible stuff. And so sometimes we need to remember that believers can teach things that are wrong. doesn't make it right. So he goes on. He says, who must be silenced? Now that word silence that he uses here, boy, I'm just, I'm not even keeping up here with my, my things. Anyway, um, here we go. He says they must be muzzled. There we go. That word silenced is actually, it's the only time it occurs in the New Testament, but it's literally, it's a word meaning to muzzle them. Does everybody know what a muzzle is, right? Something you put over a dog to keep the dog from biting people or barking incessantly. And maybe there's other reasons for muzzles too that I don't know about. But that's what a, that's what a muzzle is. And I think thinking about putting it on there to silence a dog, that's a good way. I mean, we had neighbors a few years ago that had to get up in the middle of the night at like 1.30 in the morning and go up and ring their doorbell and say, um, you need to get your dog to stop barking. Because we can't sleep at our house because all we hear all night long is, and I'm serious, like that constantly without stop. I'm like, how could a dog not be horse? <laughs> not a horse, but horse, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> And so bring the dog inside. Put it somewhere where it's not going to do that. Muzzle the dog. And he says, these people must be muzzled. We look at that and we go, Paul, come on. That's kind of rough, isn't it? Muzzle these people? Well, listen. If you, have, if you had somebody come into the church and they started teaching your kids Think about this. Think about your kids, the influence that they might have on your kids. You're not worried about yourself so much, but you're worried maybe about other people and your kids in particular, and you hear them teaching, you know what, kids? We are going to learn the Ten Commandments, God's greatest ten points for Christian living. You learn these, your life will be peachy. God will stand behind you and bless you left and right. Would you stand there and go, oh, kids, just, just, uh, no. I would say, no, you're not going to teach that. That's not right. That's not true. Because I care enough for you. I care enough for my kids. I cared enough for your kids that I don't want them to be subjected to some teaching that really is going to lead them astray. And if you want to see what it looks like being led astray, you read Romans 7, and Paul at the end of trying to live by law says, I am so miserable. I'm carrying a body, a dead body around on my back, and I want to be delivered from this, and I don't know how to get free. That's Paul's misery as a Christian trying to live by law. Is that what you intentionally want to subject other Christians to? No. So Paul says you need to muzzle these people. Again, I realize we look at that and go, man, that's really tough language, but I can understand why. And he says, because they, here's the next thing, they overturn whole households. It's not just that they're just kind of generally in the church and they're an annoyance. It's the fact that they will take households and they will turn them on their ear. I want you to turn with me over in your Bibles, over to um where do we want to go here for this? I'm just trying to find my verse. Um, for, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I knew it was in one of the Timothys. I just couldn't remember which one of them. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
he's talking about this kind of stuff. And if we go to, to verse 5, verse 5 says, Holding to a form of godliness, though they, they have denied its power, and avoid such ones as these. For among them are those who enter into households, and they take captive... Now, we have this word weak women. Literally, in the Greek, it's an expression meaning small women. And it's a it's kind of a negative, diminutive uh, idea of, of kind of, they use it of like a, a woman that's kind of silly and doesn't think very clearly. Okay? Kind of, we, men do the same thing, but he's using this of women, and you're going to see why. And the women are, and, and we, the reason we know it's women are weighed down with sins, and women are being led on very various impulses, and women are, are learning and never able to come to a knowledge. The reason we say that is because all of those are feminine participles. So they're all referring back to the women. In other words, these teachers that come in and do this, you know how they overturn whole households? According to Paul, when he's writing Timothy, is they come in and they go after the wives first. They're going to try to teach and kind of get the wives captivated by this teaching. And the wives are going, oh, I like this. I like this. I like this. And they start learning. Pretty soon the husband's coming home and the wife's saying um, this thing and this. And the husband's going, mm, no, that's, that's not the way. That's not the way it goes. And the wife's going, yeah, 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 it is. Pretty soon the husband's like, where are you getting this? Well, Bob comes by and Bob's been telling me this kind of stuff. And you're like, well, Bob's wrong. My wife's going, oh, I, I don't think Bob's wrong. Bob sounds really good. And I hate to say this sometimes, but I think that this is also one of the things that goes along with this, that I, from other texts of Scripture, that sometimes the wife is thinking, yeah, and Bob seems to be kinder and nicer to me than you are. <laughs> so I don't, I'm not going to listen to what you said. I'm going to listen to what Bob's saying. Got, got the point? They overturn whole households. If you go back over there to Titus chapter 1, this is why you need to take this seriously. They get their foot in the door by coming, getting into that house. And according to Paul, they do it by going after the women first. He says, so you have to silence them because they upset or overturn whole households. So the first thing they do is they're going to cause problems in the church. It's not, you're going to look at it and go, I think our church can handle this. I, and so we're not going to mess around with correcting this problem. And the next thing you know, you got some families in the church that are having problems because they got problems at home because part of those families are getting distracted. Now, maybe the guys, maybe the men, Paul just happened to mention the women over there in 2 Timothy, and they're going after this. And it kind of overturns the household because the household gets divided because there's somebody in there that's holding to some wrong teaching. Would you intentionally want to subject the people in your church to this that's going to cause problems in their households, in their families? Is this what you would want? No, this is why he says, Timothy or Titus, these men need to know how to muzzle them. You need to have shepherd teachers that know how to muzzle. They need to hold the word of God carefully so they can muzzle these false teachers. Now, how do you muzzle false teachers? Just, again, we're not going to chase all this down. But basically, you have to teach grace first. That's what he told him back there in verse 9. They hold to the faithful word that is measured by doctrine you practice. In other words, you they he needs to do it first of all by teaching. Let's go back to the basics. How do we live today? Who are we by grace? They need to, they need to, they need to sit in Josh's class on who are we in Christ. Because fundamentally, 
That's where this goes. Keep, take, your, take your Bibles, keeping your finger in Titus, but turn over to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, and when you get there, go to verse 43. Reason, this is Paul's first missionary journey. This is Paul's first trip as an apostle. And I want you to know, no, out the gate, when Paul is doing this, Paul is already teaching grace living. Notice what he says in verse 43. Now, when the synagogue had broken up and many of the Jews and God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. And we've talked about that before. The words urging, talking about speaking them, urging, that word that's urging or persuading them in the Greek is an imperfect tense, meaning this is what they were doing between the Sabbath that it broke up and the Sabbath they get back together during that whole week in there, they're teaching these people <coughs> to be continuing in the grace of God. Paul's teaching grace living right out the door. You get people saved day one, and right away that day or day two, Paul is teaching them, persuading them to live or continue or be at ease in God's grace. Turn over the page to chapter 14. Chapter 14, in verse 1, it says, And they came about that in Iconium, they go to the synagogue. And then it says then in verse 3, Therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly uh, upon the Lord, who, the Lord now, was bearing witness to the word of, or maybe for clarity, the word about his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hand. We talked about this a couple weeks ago on Wednesday night. Why did he give signs and wonders? Who were who, who, who signs for, particularly? They were particularly for the Jews. And the Jews had been living for 1,500 years by, by the law. And now Paul's coming along, and he's teaching them, for those who now have become believers, that we're going to live by grace. Teaches this right out the gate. He doesn't wait. Let me ask you a question. Just be real honest with me. How many of you, after you believe the gospel, how many of you would say that you were taught, let's say within a year of being saved, let's give it a year. How many of you would say that within a year of being taught, you were taught to live by the grace of God? Nobody? Nobody wants to raise their hand? How many of you had heard something about God's grace in the year? Yeah, I would say probably most of us probably heard somebody say something about the grace of God. How many of you were taught how to live by the grace of God? See, this is the point. We don't do that. We get people saved and we give them rules. This is exactly the way I was raised and I hear churches teach this to this to the day. You get saved, number one thing you need to do, you need to start praying. Number two, you need to start reading your Bible. Number three, you need to start witnessing. Those three. I, I probably heard those hundreds of times growing up, and I still hear people. Like, you get the person saved, pray, read your Bible, and witness. And are any of those things bad? No, none of them are bad. But it's getting the cart ahead of the horse. Because those people don't know anything about how to live. And Paul didn't do it that way. 
People, be, people become witnesses naturally. You don't have to push them to be witnesses. They become witnesses naturally when they come to really appreciate the grace of God and what he's doing in their life. The more they experience, not just that they're forgiven and have eternal life, but they experience the, the greatness of their salvation. When God puts them in a situation to be a witness, they'll be a witness. <laughs> they don't have to go out there and say, I'm going downtown today, and I'm going to be a witness. I'm going to find somebody, and I'm going to witness to them. That was kind of the way, you know, that I was raised. You know what? That's not really the way it happens. The thing is, is you can go down and say, God, help me to be intentional, to pay attention. If there's an opportunity to witness, to take it. So back over here with those two examples that Paul was doing this early on, we go back over there to Titus chapter 1. You muzzle these people because they're upsetting these things or upsetting these households. You do this by, first of all, teaching them to live by grace. And if you teach grace properly, it keeps law in its place. If you teach, And then you need to teach law accurately. I do think that's another thing, and he says that at the end of verse 9. You have that doctrine and you use that to contradict those people. Those people think that this is this. Go over and just show them what the law said and walk them through those things of law. And when you do that, it has a potential of shutting their mouths. But you need to do that for, the, for everybody in the church because they all need to go, hey, but this Bob was telling us this. And he said, let's go look at those scriptures. And you go look at them and people are like, well, they didn't show us that. <laughs> You're going, yeah, because he doesn't want you to see the dark side of the law. I'm using that, you know, pejoratively. It's... Not really a dark side law, but there is a side that from a certain Christian perspective doesn't always look great. And then look at the last part of verse 9. He says, and they do this for the sake of, I like the New American Standard, sordid gain. Just to put it another way, they do it for the sake of shameful money. What's shameful money? I will get paid, I will make money by whatever it takes. I don't care what anybody thinks about it. It works. I'm going to do it. I will even teach the law if it gets people to, to pay. This happened a couple of years ago. I happened to be with some other people. There was a pastor there, this thing, and I don't remember how the conversation came up, but they were talking about, you know, something about people giving at church or something, and one of the pastors kept saying tithing, and I just said, I... I don't, I don't mean to cause problems here, but you know the Bible doesn't teach that we as New Testament Christians tithe. And this one pastor was like, what? How could you teach that we don't tithe? How, you're, you, you couldn't be able to, you, a church wouldn't be able to stay afloat if people didn't tithe. You could pay your bills if people didn't tithe. And I'm just, I said, I haven't taught tithing at our church and at that time I hadn't been here 30 some years, I don't know, 25 years or whenever it was. I said, I've never taught tithing at our church. He looks at me, what? I said, no. I teach people we're to give by grace. That's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians. You do not give under compulsion. If you put money in the offering plate back there or mail in your check or however you do it these days, if you do it that way, because I got to give, because if I don't give, God won't bless me, or I got to give my 10%. Let's sit down and figure up. I got a pay raise this year. You don't have to do that. You give only when God's grace has impressed you enough to say, I want to help with whatever needs our church might have. 
whatever church needs our church might be able to participate in meeting. That's the only reason to give. If you're given otherwise, quit giving and get your attitude straight. Start living by grace. We don't need your money. Comes down to it, Josh is probably going to need some workers down there at Ace Hardware. Peg said that to me last night, whispered in a year. She goes, hey, if the church falls apart, you could maybe work for Josh down here at Ace Hardware. <laughs> See? But you get the point. And they do it for sordid gain. And I'm sure that there is, I'm sure that there is an element in there that probably, even though he doesn't mention tithing, I'm sure that tithing is part of what those guys are teaching. That they're getting people to give by telling them that they have to tithe. But it's also the fact that there are some people, there are some people that want to teach the word of God because they look that there's a paycheck behind it. And if I start teaching the word of God or if I deal with this and I think that this is what I'm doing because I want to get paid because that's what I'm here for, maybe it's time for me to quit and straighten out my attitude. So here we go. Why is it that you want a pastor to be qualified in handling the word of God well? Because you got a lot of people, he says out there, a lot of people out there that are going to mishandle the word of God. And they're going to try to put people under law. They're going to mess around with your households. They are going to do it for money. In fact, I hate to close on a negative note, but turn with me to 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 4. In this, a very classic passage that lots of people teach, growing up in fundamentalist churches, we heard this regularly, but verse 2 of 2 Timothy 4, preach the word, and then New American Standard says, be ready in season and out of season. Literally, it's the fact that you need to be attentive or stand ready when it's seasonable and when it's unseasonable. What does he mean when it's seasonable and it's unseasonable? There are going to be times that you're going to teach the word of God carefully and accurately, and you're going to look out there, and you're going to have people doing this in church. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. That's right. And, and if you were in a church different than ours, you'd have people going, Amen! Amen! Although sometimes there's so many amens, I don't know if they actually could hear what's being said. But that's that would be seasonable. But unseasonable is when you're teaching this, and you get a lot of people in the church, and they're going, no, no, I don't, no. I don't want you to tell me that I might have to suffer. I want you to tell me how I can have the best life ever. I am teaching you how you can have the best life ever. Because Peter said, you can be happy when you're suffering. I don't want to hear that. And people don't want to hear that kind of stuff. And so they want you to take the word of God and make it exciting and make it fun and make it cool. Because we want to present to the world out there, come be a Christian, because Christianity is fun. Because that's what Paul preached. Paul never preached that. Paul said, you got a need, Christ met it. Period. And if Paul would have said, you know what your life's going to look like after you believe that? It's probably going to involve a lot of suffering. How about if we put that banner up there? Anyway. So he says, he says, when it's seasonable and unseasonable, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not put up with healthy doctrine that doesn't govern your practice. They don't want people to take that word and say, this isn't for you, but let's learn from it who God is or recognize God's character in the past. They want to hear, I want to know how to apply this to my life, and it's not applicable. 
And so he says they won't put up with that, but they want their ears tickled. And they will, New American Standard says, accumulate for themselves teachers according to their own desires. And that word accumulate is a term in the Greek that means to pile up in huge piles. Yes, it's kind of redundant, is it? Pile up in piles. I just, I just always said, picture, you got all these teachers, and they're all just piled up out there, and there's all these guys going, law, 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 sermon on the mount, sermon on the mount, ah, and they're doing this, and they're just piles of these guys. I mean, what he says here is the same thing that Paul is saying to Titus. There's so many of these teachers out there that you could make piles of them. You, th you think that that's not supposed to really evoke an image in our minds that it's going to be pretty easy to find people that are going to mishandle the word of God and they're not going to pick at the nits to make sure that you're getting it carefully and accurately? And he says people are going to do that because they're going to want teachers that are going to tell them what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. Verse 4, and they will turn away their ears from the truth they will turn aside to myths, but, and again, this comes back to what a pastor needs to be like, what Timothy needed to be like, but you be sober in all these things and endure hardship. In other words, you know what? It is not always easy to be a person that stands for the truth. You're going to catch flack. And you know, sometimes if the world, if you catch flack from the world, that is one thing. I don't expect them to, I don't expect the world to go, damn, great job. I expect the world to look at me kind of going, are we from the same planet? That's the way I expect the world to react. But it's when Christians, it's when Christians respond negatively. It hurts. You hurt for them, but it hurts you too when Christians, the people that should be really craving the word of God, they don't, they don't want to sit and listen to it. And they walk away. And they're sitting there, and pretty soon they're, you know what, I'm going to go find somebody that's going to tell me what I want to hear. Because I don't want to hear how to live by grace. I want to hear how to be prosperous. I want to hear how to the best life ever on earth. Negative teachers. It's not always the funnest thing to teach on, but it's something important for us because, in fact, I, um, I don't know if you guys know who Reynolds Showers was, but Reynolds Showers for years taught with Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. And probably 25 years ago, I heard him speak at a conference. And one of the things he said, and he said, don't ask me where. He says, because I can't remember. He says, but there was a, a teacher from a seminary that he sat down with his New Testament class. And he says, we're going to read through the whole New Testament. And we're going to write down the number one things that are addressed in those New Testament letters. And he says, almost 50% almost 50% of the New Testament letters were all about error. The other 50% is talking about grace and living by grace and position in Christ. But he said like 50%, maybe it was 40%. It's been a long time since I've heard him, heard him say this. But the largest percentage of things that the class found when they looked at error, it was shocked to everybody. The teacher didn't even expect this. It was just something he thought would be good for the class. Error. Error is a prominent issue for the churches. It's a prominent issue. It has been for, two, for 20 centuries. It's a thing that we are going to have to constantly face because we're not immune to it. Because I could get up here and start spouting error or maybe some of the other teachers in the church. I wouldn't want to lump them in with me, but maybe 
we need to constantly be, and you need to know this. That's why we teach this to you, because you need to say, wait a second, our pastor isn't sounding like he should. What happened? He's gone off the rails. You need to hold me accountable, as well as our other teachers. So, pastors, hold that word so that you can use it right to do the things that believers need. Father, we're thankful for the time you've given us together. We're thankful for this instruction on the fact that, yeah, we have, there's false teachers out there, and they will really mess us up. But we want to be those that stand firm by your work, uh, stand firm in our conduct and our practice, that we are able to really appreciate all the things that you have done for us. And that, that takes a while for us to, to learn those things and to share those things. But it's what believers need. And it's what you use to ground us, to make us firm. So we're thankful for that. We're thankful for your word. And we're thankful for those that you've used in our life to share and teach these things over time. And uh, thank you for this day and for the kind attention of these saints and uh, for continued encouragement in the time that we spend together afterwards. Amen.